Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. How Should I Be Positioned explores the UBS house view recommendations compared to those of our colleagues from partner asset manager firms. We also like to touch on timely macro developments. Plenty to cover today given the fluid and ever-evolving environment that we're in. Uh, let me first take a moment to introduce our participants. Of course, joining us from the UBS Chief Investment Office is Managing Director and Head of Asset Allocation America's Jason Dreho. Uh, glad to welcome back to the podcast as well, uh, Joe Zeidel, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist for the Private Wealth Solutions Group at Blackstone. So Joe, Jason, it's great to be back on the mic with you both. I know a lot has happened since we've all been together, but plenty to talk about today and looking forward to our conversation. Welcome. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be Thank here. Thank you very much, Dan. Absolutely. So perhaps we can begin big picture. So with that in mind, uh, Joe, as we're now starting to think about 2022, the end of the year is quickly approaching. Can you begin by providing us with a high-level overview of your macro and market outlook for the year ahead? Well, uh, thank you very much, Dan. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me back on uh, today's podcast. And I'm looking forward to the, the conversation over the course of the next few minutes with you and with Jason. Um, so just in terms of a, a starting point, I, I might offer this. Uh, my partner, Byron Ween, and I will publish our annual list of 10 surprises on January 3rd. This will be our 37th annual edition of the 10 surprises. Uh, I read it for most of my career as, uh, as a, a researcher as, and an investment strategist. And then when I joined Blackstone four years ago, I was lucky enough to begin working on the 10 surprises with Byron. So I don't want to discuss specifics. I will have to wait uh, until January 3rd when we release the 10 surprises. But, you know, in terms of a couple general comments, um, I'd offer the following. First, we're pretty positive on economic growth in the United States in 2022 and, and beyond. Uh, I would say it's going to be an uneven recovery globally, where I think there are significant headwinds that are building across Europe and many uh, countries in Asia and particularly some significant headwinds in China. But focusing on the U.S., I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And, and the one that I would cite, which kind of helps form our true north, is the general health of household balance sheets. And I think in 2022, we move into what will be truly a self-sustaining expansion. Uh, and, and when I say that, what I mean is I think we transition from government policy and transfer payments to, you know, the fundamentals of, you know, household and consumer balance sheets and spending that look pretty healthy. Now, a lot has been made about the government transfers. Uh, in recent weeks, there's been uh, a lot of commentary about how as transfers have fallen, people have now used up most of their excess savings. But our, our confidence or our bullishness in the U.S. economy in 2022 really stems from the idea that wages, personal wages, which don't include government payments, These are earned, this is earned income, has more than made up for the, the uh, uh, government transfers that uh, flowed through fiscal policy in 2020 and into 2021. So if you just look at wages over the last 12 months, they're up about $885 billion. And, and compare that to government transfers, which were $187 billion. So private wages or, or earned income is growing at about seven times the rate of government transfers. And since the beginning of COVID, those person, the personal income has grown by about a trillion dollars, which is more than, than the government transfers. So 
I say that because fiscal policy is likely to be lower in 2022 and beyond. It's likely to be dispersed over years instead of over weeks or months. But that doesn't represent the idea of a fiscal cliff. Households are making up for uh, you know, what is uh, our reduced transfers through uh, personal income. And in a service-based economy like the United States, one person's spending is another person's income. And, and that ends up creating a virtuous cycle, a bit of a closed loop, if you will. So it gives us reasons for, for optimism. The last point I'll make before I, I stop and, and turn it over to Jason is that I would separate out the econo- our economic view from our market view. I think from a market perspective, we're, we're relatively fully priced here. We've had record earnings growth in 2020 and 2021, record profit margins as well. But I think multiple expansion next year is going to be hard to come by, and profits growth is naturally going to slow because of more difficult year-over-year comps. We don't get the benefit of the reopening trades. Uh, so I think it's going to be a more challenging environment for market returns, even though the economy does quite well. Uh, Obviously, we worry about inflation, but I know we'll discuss that later. Thank you, Joe. And I know myself, including our listeners, always look forward to reading and hearing about the 10 surprises authored by yourself and Byron Wien. So more to come there. But thank you, Joe, for those initial macro thoughts and expectations. Uh, Jason, curious to hear your thoughts from the vantage point of the UBS Chief Investment Office when it comes to a general macro market outlook heading into 2022. Yeah, so since we were able to you know, publish our outlook a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, some of the narratives I can speak to and certainly some of the views, I think, you know, the, the title of the report is A Year of Discovery. Um, so the kind of discovery and what will inflation look like? What will policy look like? Um, it's also kind of one of the themes we see playing out is more of a, a tale of two halves where we enter the first half of the year, still very strong U.S. growth, high inflation. But as we move into the second half of the year, expect that to moderate and closer to sort of longer term trends. So there will be different dynamics. And I think as a result, the investment playbook will evolve over the course of the year. But I think the overall macro story is still quite positive of, of strong U.S. growth, well above long term trend, like, you know, percent versus two the inflation you know concerns will certainly i think will moderate uh, maybe more than people expect currently so i think that gives us certainly comfort about the overall risk environment uh i think you know like joe i'd say like you know the returns we've seen you know this year for equities in the u.s and globally coupled with what we experienced last year just that's not sustainable but even if you know valuations don't change our outlook for earnings growth is around 11 percent for the s&p 100 so based on where the current market level is and our price target for the end of 2022 of 5100 for the S&P, we're looking at like a total return of you know 10 to 12% in that range, which is a, a you know right on kind of the long-term average. It's a good year. So I think it's it's not as great as this year or, or you know the past couple of years, but it's still a kind of a good story. So I think we're we're constructive on the outlook. You know, obviously the recent news on Omicron has a little bit of uncertainty that the market's digesting it. And even yesterday, the you know, with Powell's comments, the Fed chair on terms of, you know, their policy path suggests a little more indigestion the market has to deal with in near term. But I think ultimately that doesn't change the fundamental story. Um, and I don't put out my own sort of 10 surprises. If I were, I think the one surprise that I would have on that kind of dovetails what Joe was describing in terms of a positive look on the economy is that 
12 months from now, if we're talking about what is the market dynamic, a lot of people might think it's, you know, stagflation could be the concern. I think there's a decent chance, an underappreciated chance that 12 months from now, we'll be talking about actually a very strong U.S. economy of good growth, this virtuous cycle, not just from the consumer, but also the corporate investment side and CapEx. It's sort of the supply side of the economy being stronger than we've seen it really in a number of years. And that sort of fuels things. It also helps bring inflation pressures down. I've kind of, you know, used the analogy that instead of being the 1970s, the stagflation, what we could see is something more like the 1990s from an economic perspective of this kind of virtuous cycle, productivity growth, uh, and technology really kind of, you know, being able to deploy it in a way that's enhancing the economy. I'm not saying that's a base case, but if I were to say that's a surprise, I think that's something that's been discounted too much by investors in the market that could materialize over the next 12 months. Jason, thank you for those thoughts heading into 2022, including some thoughts around that surprise. Running with Jerome Powell's testimony from yesterday up on Capitol Hill, which was shared by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. So this conversation today, very timely, considering that testimony where the chairman essentially abandoned that transitory language, which could pave the way for rate hikes in 2022. Uh, We did get a bit of a reaction from the markets yesterday, but also keeping in mind the highly anticipated Fed meeting in just a couple of weeks, Joe, given what we've been hearing as of late, what are your expectations and what might the policy path forward look like from the Fed in 2022? Yeah, well, uh, thank you. A, a great um, uh, a question. And, and Jason, I appreciate hearing your views. And uh, and thanks for offering up the uh, one of the surprises. We might uh, we might take you up on that. Uh, I've, I've been looking at, at the CapEx cycle, and I, I do think it's going to be one that is fundamentally different from what we saw over the course of the last economic expansion. You know, from March of 09 to February of 2020, we had an economy that was running at 95 to 97 percent capacity. So there was really no reason or no incentive for companies to deploy CapEx uh, but today, I think, as everybody sees, we're really bumping up against capacity. And I think because of that, we are likely to get a, a strong CapEx cycle. So I just wanted to mention that because I, I very much agree with the idea of, of that, Jason. I think you're, I think it's going to be an important theme in, in 2022 and, and beyond and one that's probably underappreciated by most investors simply because it's been so long since we've really seen a, a true CapEx cycle. Um, so, so kind of turning to your, your question, Dan, on, on, on Fed and tapering. I, I, I think it's, you know, it's pretty well telegraphed that, that, um, you know, tapering will begin. It will probably, uh, they'll probably have to accelerate the pace given, given inflation. And, and, you know, fortunately the Fed has now abandoned the idea of transitory inside of our own businesses. You know, here at Blackstone, we have been seeing, um, uh, and arguing for more persistent inflation through, through shelter, right? If you think about shelter, it's one third of the CPI basket, yet it was just one fifth of the contribution to inflation in the month of October. And I think what the Bureau of Labor Statistics is is publishing in their in their shelter surveys, uh, I think is really far from reality. So there's reasons to think that there's real long persistent inflation, and that's going to cause the Fed to, I think, taper more aggressively. I think Powell acknowledged that. Um, the the real question as we think about that policy path is is what effect is that going to have on the ten year Treasury yield? Because I think the ten year Treasury yield is going to be really relevant to all of us throughout all asset classes. Uh, in, in a portfolio next year and, and beyond. And, you know, the market's reaction to the Fed's testimony was to bring the long end of the curve down and the 10 year treasury rallied and, and yields fell. Um, our, our work and, you know, suggests that we ought to see the, the opposite, that the 10 year ought to move higher because of growth, because of inflation and just generally less Fed intervention. So the question becomes, will tapering and the end of balance sheet expansion lead to price discovery 
And and is it likely that tapering and ultimately higher rates, is it likely to push the the 10-year Treasury yield up higher? Um, And most people look back at 2013's taper tantrum, you know, where where Treasury yields basically ended up falling and and say that, you know, as the Fed tapers and they start to hike rates, it it ought to bring the the 10-year down. I would disagree with that. I I think tapering and ultimately hiking rates is going to push the long end of the curve up. You know, we have a much different set of conditions today than existed in December of 2013, because it was December 2013 when the Fed formally began tapering. And from there, the 10-year Treasury yield went from 3.1% to 1.8% over the course of the next 14 months. So even though it's December, and, and it was December 2013 versus December 2021, you know, the conditions today are a lot different than they were in 2013. We have an economy that is bumping up against capacity and poised to boom. And that simply wasn't the case then. So I don't think 2013 is the right roadmap for what to expect. I think we're going to see yields grind higher, even as the Fed tapers and, and ultimately hikes. Thank you, Joe. Jason, from the vantage point of the chief investment office here at UBS, has anything changed in the way of the monetary policy outlook for 2022 in light of the commentary we heard from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell yesterday up on Capitol Hill? First, Joe, one my, my surprise, I'm going to trademark that and I'll license to, to you if you'd like to use it so we can talk off the line. Um, second, yeah. you know, um, you know, Blackstone owns a number of companies, you know, would have, a, I think, a pretty good, you know, collective view of what's going on in the economy. One of the key aspects of inflation right now is like the supply chains and issues there. There seems to be like some indication over the past couple of weeks that things are getting a little bit better. Even this morning, we saw the ISM come out and, you know, the margin, it's improving. Are you getting kind of color from, you know, the companies owned by Blackstone or other you know, parts of the whole Blackstone sort of investment universe that suggests maybe the worst is over? That would give you some comfort that inflation you know, won't be you know, persistent, leaving out shelter, which is a different story in terms of the wage dynamic, but just in terms of like supply chains, any kind of thing that you, in a real-time basis, would give you more comfort or more concern one way or another? Great, great question. And and, and thanks. It, um, you know, one of the portfolio companies we own is a company called Carex, and they're the largest port owner operator in the Americas uh, and, uh, and, and one of the largest globally. And among the ports that we own and operate is the San Pedro Port Complex. I don't in uh, on the west coast from that stretch of land from la to long beach we own and operate those terminals uh so i've spent a lot of time with the company with the board with its its folks over the course of the last uh year but particularly in the last you know couple months talking about you know what they're seeing you know literally from 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 the ground uh and and secondly um we own and operate in our logistics business many of the warehouses around those ports uh and 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 particularly warehouses on the east coast outside the ports of Savannah and Norfolk. So, so that's just a little bit of background to the, the, the comments that I want to just make here. Um, our portfolio companies think it's going to be, or, or particularly talking with those companies, they think it's going to be a year or more before supply chains really normalize. Um, they will get better. They're starting to get better. Um, and, and they'll probably continue. Uh, I, I think that probably the worst of it will be the first quarter of next year, but with the worst of the supply chains being behind us, it doesn't mean that supply chains are, are normalizing because of the shortages of chassis. You know, 80% of the chassis around the world are manufactured in China, and the U.S. currently has tariffs ranging from 80% to 160% on those imported chassis. So we can't even get the chassis. We have a shortage of truckers. There's a shortage of ships. Uh, but the real 
question for all of us in, in 2022 will be the role of the Omicron variant in China. Because as everybody knows, China's been pursuing a zero COVID tolerance policy, and that applies to their ports as well. So China's done a very good job of keeping COVID out of its borders. But the corollary is they don't have the herd immunity should they start to get breakthrough cases. And what we've seen from China is a willingness to shut parts of their economy or their ports with as little as one case. So if they're to get a more virulent um, variant and it, it means that they don't necessarily have the herd immunity, even though they've had the vaxes, but it means that we could get some disruptions next year that aren't even built into forecasts currently. So I think that is a, a risk and that's something that, that we're looking at pretty closely here. So hopefully that helps. No, no, that's good color. You, China's kind of the wild card in this. And, and one thing, you know, trying to read the tea leaves of what Chinese policymakers are going to do, that's always a little bit difficult. One thing I've thought, and more is just a pure kind of conjecture, is that they've taken this zero tolerance kind of COVID policy. And they're one of the few remaining countries in the world that's doing it. You know, Australia and New Zealand, everyone else has kind of capitulated at this point. But are they just holding out until after the Olympics because they want everything to go smoothly then and look like they've handled it better than anyone else? And once that happens, whether they would sort of alleviate pure conjecture on my part, but it'll be interesting dynamic to see how that plays out if, if Omicron ends up being significant and China can't sort of really come about it. Do they just sort of, you know, you know pivot in some way? Uh, but going back just, Dan, quickly to your question, specifically on kind of the policy path, you know, for the Fed, you know, it, the market is now becoming more aggressive in terms of what they expect. You know, I think the view now is, is that they're going to announce a more accelerated tapering uh, on the 15th of December on the next LFOMC meeting so they can be done as soon as March and that will let them raise rates starting at some point in the second quarter. The market's pricing about three rate hikes for, you know, for next year. I think I would say we're a little more cautious uh, or skeptical that the Fed will move quite that quickly. You know, yes, they're concerned with inflation, but there's just a lot of uncertainty in terms of how growth could be impacted by Omicron, uh, how much inflation could moderate starting in the second quarter, because we know just from a mathematical year-over-year base effect that it's going to drop starting with the April CPI numbers. So when we get in early May, um, we know inflation is going to decline. How much? I think that's the open question. So if you're Jay Powell, if you're the LFOMC community, do you want a few more months before you really kind of start to assess it and start to raise rates you know, significantly? So I think it's we lean towards probably a little more caution than what the market's pricing in right now. But a lot of it's so much is data dependent. I think at this point, it's a, it's a bit of a guessing game in terms of what they'll do because, you know, they don't know how the data is going to actually turn out from inflation, from, from growth, from labor market recovery. So I think as a result, I think we just, you know, err towards a little more caution. You know, but you know, that remains to be seen as we move more into the second quarter of next year. Thank you, Jason. I want to just acknowledge market activity over the past few sessions. This is dating back to Friday. We've seen volatility in both directions, but it's always important to reinforce what to do, what not to do when these spouts of volatility occur. Uh, timely to do so today, but with the policy changes, uh, the continued uncertainty around COVID-19, the variants, Joe, in mind, what do you expect near to medium term with with respect to potential market volatility and what might be some do's and don'ts for investors when we encounter these periods? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think we will see more market volatility as we transition from liquidity to fundamentals. And and that's something I had uh, I mentioned just a, a couple minutes ago at the beginning of the, the program. But the idea of us being in this liquidity driven bull market 
uh, really goes back to the great financial crisis. When we exited that in 2009, we exited it with uh, interest rates zero, with quantitative easing, QE1, QE2, uh, Operation Twist, QE Infinity. And basically, for the last 12 or 13 years, we've lived in an environment where the Fed was providing basically unlimited liquidity, and the market began to look at the Fed as a risk manager, managing downside risk. And the Fed could provide the liquidity and manage the downside risk because the Fed never had to worry about inflation. Now, I think the tables have turned because the Fed is clearly having to fight inflation. Uh, I, I think Jason brings up a terrific point about how inflationary numbers will moderate beginning the second part of next year or after May, just given the year-over-year comps, uh, they become a lot more challenging. But I wouldn't confuse, you know, falling year-over-year inflation prints from the activity that's happening beneath the surface because we see shelter costs going up. Shelter is the largest component of the CPI basket. And, and that plus wages, I think, will continue to put upside pressure on inflation, even though you'll get a lot of volatility in the numbers. So, so going back to my point about the, the Fed is this. In an environment where they undershot inflation systemically, they could be the risk manager. They could be the provider of liquidity. But now, I think as inflation becomes a problem, the Fed's not going to be that active downside risk manager, and that's going to lead to more volatility. So it's, it harkens back to the idea of that Fed put. And what happens to the markets when we are tapering and ultimately, you know, hiking rates and ultimately shrinking our balance sheet and you get volatility knowing that the Fed is a little bit constrained because they can't just step into the markets to mute that volatility because they've now got another fight to fight, right? They've got to fight that inflation fight. So I think it's going to drive more volatility in the markets and, and that will probably lead to a change in leadership. Uh, and I think we'll see that. I think we'll see, you know, your big speculative, um, you know, most speculative tech companies, um, you know, being being pretty challenged uh, simply because as the discount rate goes up, as interest rates go up, the cost of that speculation goes up as well. It's a lot more expensive to hold long duration assets, assets that don't produce free cash flow in an environment where interest rates and inflation are going higher. So I think we're going to see some more volatility. And I think we'll see a change in leadership. Thank you, Joe. Jason, what about your thoughts in the way of an outlook for volatility near to medium term, as well as any guidance when it comes to investor behavior or response? Well, I'll add a little bit to, to what Joe had said, because I think, you know, we're experiencing now an environment that we haven't in at least a decade and arguably you could say like almost 20 years, which means for, for many investors, they've never really experienced investing in a inflationary environment in their professional career. So not only is inflation higher, but when inflation goes higher, the kind of the volatility around it is also increases. It's sort of a, a natural byproduct that you can get swings from like four or five or six percent as opposed to pre-pandemic. The question was volatility like or was inflation 1.6 percent or was it 1.8 percent? These are not, you know, you know, going to really kind of spook the markets one way or another. When you have higher inflation kind of volatility, that tends to lead to higher interest rate volatility. We've seen that pick up quite significantly in recent weeks, more at sort of shorter term interest rates, like two or three or four years or five years, as the market's responding to having to price in perhaps a more aggressive Fed. That kind of interest rate volatility, because it's sort of the baseline 
you know, for, for so many asset classes, as, as Joe alluded to, that it's like your opportunity cost. As that kind of rate goes up, it's going to have impact that cascades through other asset markets, equities, credits, you know, commodities. And what we've seen this year is, you know, kind of periodic spikes in volatility. You know, it's been a relatively calm year. If you just look at the S&P 500, it hasn't been a straight line higher. There's been some pullbacks here and there, but it's pretty consistently kind of been moving higher. If you look at the volatility measurement, like the VIX index, um, there's been sort of spikes in May, June, September, and now just in the past week. Each of those either corresponded with an FOMC meeting, like a Fed meeting, whether maybe they became a little more hawkish than expected, uh, or inflation data exceeded expectations, and suddenly the market realized the Fed has to get more aggressive. So it's not just a level of volatility that's higher, but I think you know we're kind of characterized by a market that is going to peer- experience kind of periods of spiking volatility, kind of, you know, the volatility, volatility will rise every now and then. And that's been the case this year. I don't see any reason why it's going to change, certainly into the first part of next year as inflation stays high, as the questions about what the Fed is going to do materializes. Then we look at what it means for different asset classes. Uh, it, you know, Joe mentioned, like, you know, growth stocks, things like that. These things that have wouldn't think sort of their interest rate sensitive because they have cash flows way out into the future. They tend to be highly sensitive. So small changes in interest rates can lead to big moves in asset prices. Um, you have other things like commodities that have in the short term fixed supply, but demand that can move around and that tends to lead to like large volatility. And we've just, you know, for example, on Friday, the S&P was down 2%, oil was down 11.5%. So that kind of volatility, I think, will, will kind of persist for next year. And then sort of a wild card in all this is the role of retail investors. Because in the past two years, and it's become more prominent this year, retail investors have become a much bigger influence in the market in a way that they haven't been really published since the late 1990s during the dot-com era. Uh, and they're whether they're buying meme stocks, whether they're buying call options, whether they're just huge flows into funds, this has become a force that drives the markets potentially adding volatility, dampening volatility if they kind of step in anytime there's a sell-off. Will that continue next year or not? I think that remains to be seen. But that can be an amplifier of volatility or a dampener of volatility. So if you add it all up, I think uh, you know this year uh, has been a straight on higher with a little, little bit of volatility. Next year, it's going to be probably a flatter line, higher moving, you know, for equities moving higher with more periods of volatility and potentially more periods of sizable drawdowns, like 5 to 10% that we really haven't experienced much this year. That would be my anticipation for the next 12 months. Thank you, Jason. So believe it or not, we are nearing the end of our time together today. 30 minutes goes very quick, especially when discussing these topics. So let's end on asset allocation. Maybe what we can do, Jason, is we'll provide our guest, Joe Zinal, with the final word. So Jason, I'll ask you, in consideration of the macro market outlook into 2022, you have shared with our listeners, our clients, what is the chief investor office currently recommending when it comes to asset allocation. And that, of course, can account as well, Jason, for opportunities in private markets, which I know the chief investment office has been talking about in recent months. Well, our fundamental view is still you know, fairly positive. I think I began with that in terms of the growth outlook for next year, inflation you know, moderating to some extent. So it's still a favorable overall macro environment for, for risk assets and for equities you know, as well. So what we're recommending is investors kind of lean towards you know, staying in stocks. I think how you position for it, I think it's it, we're going to be sort of transitioning. So things that we've liked this year and still like going into next year in more value sectors like financials and energy, some mid-cap equities, looking outside the U.S., you know, Japan and Eurozone equities that tend to be kind of tied to the global cycle. We still think there's there's good upside there. But that should be balanced with things that are, you know, maybe could do well in environments where the macro situation isn't quite as good as I outlined. You know, healthcare is a sector that we like uh, right now. And I think if you look at what happened last Friday, 
the S&P was down about 2.5%. Healthcare was down only half a percent. It was, it was the best performing sector, uh, even though it was still down. I think because it has these sort of defensive growth attributes. So I think as the year moves on, I'm shifting from a more pro-cyclical to a little bit more mid-cycle allocation. That's something that we would be looking to do. I think, you know, the way you would sort of want to fund some of those positions is probably not take a lot of interest rate risk. You know, we'd expect interest rates to rise, so avoid, you know, sort of longer maturity, say corporate bonds, you know, high quality corporate bonds or government bonds. Uh, the recent pullback in oil makes, you know, oil and some commodities more attractive, and that's an area that we've liked. Um, and we do expect the U.S. dollar to continue to rise. So thinking about what would be beneficial and what, all, what also would be harmed, I think some EM assets tend not to do as well and when the U.S. dollar is rising, so kind of shy away from that. And then on, you mentioned the private markets. Look, as in an environment where yields, especially after inflation, are quite low, looking to private markets for more income, like private credit remains attractive uh, for diversification, whether it's kind of you know, hedge funds, if bonds aren't going to provide the diversification they have in the past. Then ultimately, for longer-term investors who can kind of look through some of the short-term volatility, if you want higher real returns, then looking to asset classes, like real asset classes, which equities are over 10 years, real estate, to infrastructure, those remain kind of attractive, especially if on all on longer horizon. Um, and the, the one advantage, of, frankly, of private markets is that, going back to the volatility point, um, because you're not looking day to day and even minute to minute like how things are fluctuating even though implicitly maybe the value isn't moving around as much you tend to get to let, focus less on the volatility you can focus more on the underlying sort of fundamentals and i think that just as an investment strategy that provides some sort of benefit of, of not seeing the sort of daily mark to market adjustments so in a volatile environment there is just that pure optics and sort of you know psychological benefit of going into private markets as well thank you jason for those takeaways and considerations uh, joe zidal i'll provide you the final word if you can take a few moments to walk our listeners through your thoughts when it comes to asset allocation heading into 2022, including any thoughts on the private markets, whether it be private equity, real estate, credit. Any thoughts there, Joe? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to have the final word. And again, I want to thank you very much for having me on today's program. Uh, I think Jason made some really excellent comments and and, and I think some, some terrific ideas and recommendations. And I want to pick up on just two things that, uh, that Jason said, first on interest rate risk and then second on avoiding long maturity, because I think they, they dovetail uh, very well with, with our views. And and so my final word would be to ask the, the, uh, the, the following question. In, in 2022, in a world in which inflation is, uh, I think, more persistent and transient, the Fed is tapering and hiking rates, uh, we see the 10-year Treasury yield rising. I think it could easily go to 25 to 2.75% over the course of the next 12 months. And, and so I think the important question for all of us is going to be, is every asset in our portfolio going to either, number one, benefit from a higher 10-year treasury yield, or number two, hedge against it? And I think that's going to be one of the most critically important questions that we ask. And I think almost all, I think all the assets in a portfolio are going to need to be judged through that lens. Uh, it's a new, it's a new world for most investors. We've been in a, a, a secular bull market for treasuries for basically the last 40 years. And, and that was from September 1981 until August of 2020, where the 10-year Treasury yield went from 15.6% in 1981 to 50 basis points last August. And, and I think we're in an environment where rates are going to back up and we're going to see the 10-year Treasury yield move secularly higher. That will drive a different set of um, uh, winners and losers across all assets. So I think the duration management is going to be critical, not only fixed income, where duration is a relatively simple concept. It means you're going to want to want floating rate. You're going to want to be 
uh, you know, take advantage of opportunities in, in private credit uh, and, and other forms of fixed income that have the ability to reset rates higher. But you're going to want a shortened duration in real estate. Uh, where if you think about shorter duration real estate, that would include things like multifamily, where you can reset your rents annually. Hotels, we can basically reset your rates, your, your rates virtually daily. Uh, logistics, where uh, our warehouses have an average lease of about three and a half years. So you're going to want short duration in fixed income, in, in, in real estate, uh, and forms of real estate that have the ability to, uh, increase their, their yields through shorter duration holdings. And then shorter duration in equities as well. And that means avoiding some of the most speculative pre-revenue, pre-earnings type companies whose cash flows are weighted toward the distant future. I think growing free cash flow across all assets of a portfolio will be king in 2022 and beyond. So with that, I'll stop there. And again, thank you for having me on today's program. Well, Joe Zeidel of Blackstone, Jason Dreho of our UBS Chief Investment Office. Always enjoy catching up with you both and hearing your current thinking when it comes to the macro market environment and always value your recommendations and thoughts when it comes to asset allocation. A lot of valuable takeaways here. Uh, so I do wish you and yours both a happy and healthy holiday season. Looking forward to picking back up with our conversation in the year ahead. Though, Joe, Jason, thank you again for your time today and for spending time with our clients and our listeners. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan, and thank you, Joe, for joining us. Hopefully, maybe next time we could all be done in person. Looking forward to it. And again, today, we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Managing Director and Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Joe Zidal, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist for the Private Wealth Solutions Group at Blackstone. How Should I Be Positioned is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.